This is the Almost Awakened Podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reed. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. All right, all right, folks. Welcome back to another episode of the Almost Awakened podcast. It is July 4th, Independence Day, and I'm sitting Or Treason Day. Yeah, yeah, look at that. That Boston Tea Party depends on what side you're on, doesn't right. it? Right. Yes, it does. That, that January 6th uh, thing at the Capitol, like, you know, 10% angrier and 10% more people. And uh, who knows what kind of what kind of, uh, of things would have happened that day. But really, it is through the eyes of the victor that the story gets yep. told. Absolutely. Yeah. So we're sitting here with Sarah Westbrook. It is July 4th. Uh, Britt Hartley is out for the summer. Um, but we are grateful to continue to be doing the podcast. We will have a, and you'll probably know this by the time you see this episode, but we will have a special co-host who's helping us uh, through the summer. And then there were a bunch of folks who reached out uh, to me to uh, possibly uh, do some co-hosting and little by little, I'll be reaching out to see if those folks have uh, some interesting topics that they'd like to come on and talk about. And then we'll try to get most of those folks uh, in. Uh, Sarah, let's start off by giving you a chance to tell us about who you are and uh, why it is that we're talking to you today. Absolutely. Thank you, Bill. Um, So my name is Sarah Westbrook. I have a master's degree in mental health counseling from Walden University. I am a licensed professional counselor. I have a license in two states, uh, Texas and Missouri. Um, I also do some life coaching on the side and then uh, the NCC there at the end of my name is nationally certified counselor. And that means I pay an extra fee to have the extra letters at the end of my name. That's it. what that actually, that's what that actually means. Letters um, always come with a cost, don't they? A little bit. Yeah. It's not yeah. too bad of a cost, but yes, that's, that's what that, that means. It means I passed my test and paid a fee within so many days of passing my licensing exam. And now I just pay the fee to keep the letters. Um, that's what that tape. means. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so political. Um, I'm also the host of Unpacking Mormonism and Other Religious Trauma with my husband, Mason Westbrook. Um, and I host the Raising Crazy Growing Up to Show Up podcast. And both of those, we are talking about trauma, how to overcome that trauma from a mental health, behavioral health perspective. Um, they're both psychoeducational programs to help the listener know what to do next. You know, this is where I am on the journey. They know the history stuff. They, they, they understand, you know, where their triggers are. And so what do they do with all of those? Um, and then finally, I um, wrote a book. It will be available for pre-sales here in about the next 10, 10, 14 days um, on Amazon. And there's, there's the book. It is called Trauma Bonded. A True Story of Navigating Attachments Forged in Complex PTSD. It is half memoir, 
Well, I'm pro I'm, that's probably a little bit. I'm going to say it's about 85% memoir and 15% self-help. So I'm trying to create my own niche in um, self-help through storytelling or self-help through memoir. Um, so this is the first book in that series. And I've got four more in the works um, that are all on differing topics where we've got that self-help through storytelling. Um, so that's that's that. It will be released. Its official release date is September 6th of this year. So we're really excited. I'm really yeah, you, excited You had about mentioned that. the connection to Mormonism, the 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 uh, being connected to the September 6th kind of in their honor. And what a, what a great, cool thing. I mean, these those six folks, uh, Abraham, Gileadi, uh, Maxine Hanks being two of them, those folks probably wouldn't have gotten hardly in any trouble at all today. But in the mm -hmm. time they lived in, it just wasn't okay to talk about facts and real history. And the trouble is when you punish people for something they didn't do wrong, right? Right. That's when shame and trauma come in is when people have the repercussions of something they didn't deserve in the first place. And Absolutely. Well, and I want to honor their, their dedication to telling the truth. They were truth tellers and then their dedication to factual history and science. Um, and so I feel that my book is a truth-telling, factual, science-based um, story. And so I would like to honor them by being brave enough to stand up for what they knew and believed to be true and to speak out despite the negative repercussions that I'm sure they knew were a huge risk when they did that. So, yeah, it is, it is the only way. Um... Well, I should say only, maybe that's <laughs> all inclusive words are dangerous. <laughs> yeah. But it is one of the big ways that when a group or when a collective is making the wrong decision, the, the only, you say it again, only, but one of the big ways <laughs> to, to get in the way of that is for somebody to have the courage to stand up front and go, this isn't the way you think it is. Yeah. Yeah. So I appreciate that. Well, yeah. let's jump into this. You you've got definitely got uh, the credentials, and this is a topic is deeply interesting to me. Um, we titled this uh, "Clinical Perspective on Spirituality and Psychedelics." Um, I used conscious altering tools as a teenager, just as recreationally LSD, you know, mm -hmm. and cannabis. Um, and those were neat experiences, but they were. I only went into them recreationally. And then I become an adult, you know, I, I leave my faith system behind. I begin to kind of challenge all the rules and I step into uh, psychedelics again uh, as tools this time around. And I am, I've been blown away for whatever it's been six or seven years mm -hmm. of uh, thinking about researching uh, trying. And, and when I use these tools, I, I literally sit in the space of going into my head and really trying to figure out how to be human better. And then things like Michael Pollan's How to Change Your Mind comes out and, and there's all this research and we start to sense that drugs that would have, that were not very successful in the past or other modalities of therapy that weren't very successful, suddenly with things like PTSD and depression, um, these things really are tools and you finally see the U S government who had lied for years about what these things were beginning to soften up. And so now you have most States have recreate or uh, medical cannabis, uh, a handful of States more have recreational cannabis. You've got places like um, 
uh, Oregon and, and Colorado that are doing like uh, legality of like mushrooms. And, and you're mm-hmm. beginning to see folks report back of really getting significant help in areas. And so right. uh, let's start off. We want to connect the dots though to psychedelics. So let's start off with spirituality. Um, so, yeah. So I'm going to pause you really quick. I want to mm-hmm. say, um, because I am a licensed professional counselor, I have to give this nice little Please. disclosure for self-protection. And that is everything that we're talking about today is for educational purposes only. Um, and the other thing is that uh, I just want to clarify something that you said about the legality of psychedelics. Technically, psychedelics are still illegal in all 50 states, even in those counties in Oregon and Colorado, where it's been decriminalized, that does not make it legal. It just means that if you're caught using or growing um, and they choose to press charges, it's a misdemeanor now instead of a felony. Um, so we're, we're getting, we are getting there and we're going to actually hear in a little bit when we get into the actual clinical implications for the use of psychedelics. And we're only talking about psychedelics today. You also have the hallucinogens. So, you know, ketamine would be a hallucinogen. We're only talking about psychedelics today because if we went into the other ones, we would be here for six, seven hours. So I just want to make sure that, you know, the listeners know there is legal risk in using all of this. However, the scientific data is very clear as to the benefits that these substances have. And, And you're absolutely correct. They were criminalized in what, the late 60s, mid 70s. Um, maybe it was the late 70s where they criminalized all of it and stopped the research um, for how we could utilize these substances medicinally. Yeah. And I would only add to that, you know, again, my speaking of my own use is not Sarah giving any sort of approval to that, but rather me saying that having used these tools personally, that I understand why these things work and why Mm -hmm. they are of a huge benefit and why this, you know, minus some really strong conservative values kind of stopping us from that moving forward. It, it feels like if we let the data do its thing and convince mm-hmm. us of whether things are good or bad, that this is, this is going to roll forward. And Absolutely. so let's connect some dots. Yeah. Let's connect yeah. some dots on spirituality. So um, maybe define for us spirituality and add any insights you would want to, before we jump into how this connects to psychedelics. Absolutely. So in the behavioral health field, we do not identify spirituality as religious. Um, not, not at all. I would say that most counselors or behavioral health specialists kind of have their own unique definition. Mine that I've kind of coined together for when Sarah is talking about spirituality. Um, my, my little quote here is spirituality is the manner in which human being, human beings connect in profound ways with all living things. Um, and, and that would include animals, plants, you know, environmental stuff, as well as other human beings. Um, and, and connection is really, you know, how do we relate with them? What is our relationships like? How do we protect? How do we care for? How does it care for us? You know, I would say that the environment cares for us and we care for the environment. And so it's kind of that, you know, the cliche circle of life type of thing, but it's really the way in which we connect on significantly deep levels with anything that is living around us. 
Um, and I think that that is a, is a very important distinction as we go into this, because when we're talking about substances that come from the earth, <clears throat> for example, magic mushrooms, our relationship with something that is very natural is going to be very different than say something that is very synthetic or man-made with fillers and, and whatnot. It, it does have a very different and profound effect on our conscious awareness. So, yeah. Love it. Um, you know, it, when Britt and I have these conversations around spirituality, you know, it's this idea of, again, often people want to connect it to religion. And I actually think if, if we think back in time, it would have sat on its own. You know, it, mm -hmm. the, when we go back far enough and we're sitting around the fire as, as tribes of people playing our music and dancing and doing all the things that we humans do hunting and gathering. And um, I think people would have had a lot more control over their own spirituality. You see in any of these indigenous tribes, you know, they've got a shaman and you take a medicine tool and you go off on a journey, but really you're sent off on your own journey and the shaman's just there to kind of guide that. And somewhere mm -hmm. along the way, somebody tried to take control of what the interpretation of the experience was for the collective. And right. then, and then you get religion, right? And we know the power of myth and all that. But well, and I'm going to I'm going to say, you know, one of the things that you're talking about is what I like to describe as internal versus external sources. So with religion, you have, you know, a, a leader and, and a lot of people would identify that as a spiritual leader um, or, you know, a pastor, prophet, um, priest, where they are telling you how you need to interpret your individual spiritual experiences. And really what we found in clinic, and I think what most people have just discovered in their own as they exercise their authenticity with spirituality is that our spiritual experiences are most meaningful when we interpret what they mean for ourselves. Our brain is always looking to assign, and that's a, that's one of the few times I'm going to use the word always, um, but our brain is always looking to assign meaning and understanding and knowledge to what we are thinking, feeling, and experiencing. And so we really have to learn when we're when we're trying to gain spiritual health, we really want to learn how to trust ourselves in interpreting what a spiritual experience means or how we exercise our own spirituality. As soon as we let somebody on our outside define what that means for us, it loses value. It loses meaning and it loses its significance. Yeah, totally. I, I remember being in uh, an ayahuasca uh, experience where there were 11 or 14 of us or so, and we're all in one room and everybody's on their yoga mats and everybody has their experience with that medicine tool for the night. And then the next morning, the shaman got us all together to integrate that, to kind of talk about it and process it. But everybody spoke from their own space. Like, here's the experience I had. Here's what it meant to me. Mm -hmm. And there's this really cool thing where if you send kids into a classroom, for instance, the teacher teaches them the same lesson on algebra. And uh, everybody walks out of that classroom generally having had the same lesson. Mm -hmm. But we humans are so different from each other. And again, math, that's necessary. But when we're trying to teach people how to be in touch with their inner self and how to uh, take 
take insights and then show up in the outer world different. It really is important to let people have their own experience that has their own meaning. And so as, as we got up the next morning and sat around in a circle and everybody shared their own insights, we all intuitively understood that everyone's experience was for them. If somebody mm -hmm. had an experience that seemed out of touch with reality, say they talked to their dead grandmother, for instance, everybody in the room was free to decide whether that was just in their head, whether they really did talk to their, their dead grandmother. People need to have room because we are all different to personalize these experiences to themselves. And so I think you're hitting on a really important thing. Well, and what you're describing, you know, I'll take that same, you, you talk about an algebra test. One of the examples I will use in clinic a lot is if you're, you know, walking down a street and there is a car accident that, you know, you, one, two, three, four different people witness the exact same car accident. If you separate those witnesses and you begin to interview them on what happened, they're all going to have a different version of what happened. And if you remove them from their ability to, you know, check their data with, you know, okay, I'm going to look over, okay, the cars are still there. But if you remove them from that, you're going to have things as different as what color the cars were. Um, and, and we don't necessarily understand why that is, but I think having respect for that, because if I took all of those witnesses and sent them through a lie detector test, they're going to all pass, which is why lie detector tests aren't necessarily super reliable in a court of law because there's a lot of subjective factor, subjective truth that comes from observation. I would also say that if somebody is saying, I met my dead grandmother in this place, really, if we can withhold, you know, if, I, if I'm hearing somebody else say, I spoke with somebody beyond the veil, um, or and, and that's a totally Mormon term, you know, from the other side, um, if I spoke with somebody from the other side, um, it's not my place to to really say whether or not I feel like that was in their head or it was a real experience. I want to connect with the reality of that for the other person and just completely withhold judgment. It's not my job to decide. It's my job to believe. And as we find communities that can do that for us where we can have these experiences and share them and just be believed that increases the significance of our individual spirituality because we are connecting with other human beings on that in that profound way. Um, that's, that's so important. Yeah. And, and it seems as though human beings, you know, we, we'd like to think, uh, as a society or as a collective or a government that, you know, we need to kind of step in and tell people how to live their lives. But the reality is when you give, and most people are good, I think. And, and when you give people experiences that have a tendency to uh, pass along wisdom, people tend to do something productive with the information that they're given. Yeah. And as you're pointing out, it gets sabotaged when somebody claims to speak for everyone. Like this is the way we all interpret this. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say, you know, one of the things that's really interesting in the in the research for, in my field is the power of confession um, and and meaning. And this is, you know, comes back to that spirituality, you know, across a lot of religious systems, confession is supposed to be the way that you can recover or right or wrong, you know, recover from sin, 
right or wrong, those types of things. But one of the things that's really interesting in the data is that the only time that confession is effective is if the confessor feels like what they are saying is going to be honored without judgment and kept confidential. So you're talking about that unconditional positive regard um, where there's no judgment. And so that becomes very difficult in religious systems because there's that external source that says you did A, B, or C, therefore the judgment is, the data would say that that level of confession is not healing. Whereas if I go to a trusted friend who I know is going to love me without judgment, they're going to keep that confidence and I confess whatever it is that is bothering me in that connective relationship without judgment, then it becomes healing and we see significant reduction in symptoms of anxiety, symptoms of depression, and we see an increase in belonging, acceptance, and relationship connection, which increases, you know, number one, your spirituality, and number two, the bonds that you share in healthy relationships. Yeah. And I love your definition, by the way. Spirituality, spirituality is the manner in which human beings connect in profound ways with all living things. Um, whenever I feel spirituality, that's exactly what's happening. It's either awe and transcendence uh, in terms of looking out at the, the stars in the universe. It's, it's uh, seeing uh, other animal life and, and uh, them and how they, how they live. And uh, also just my connection with my friends or uh, a stranger on the street when there's a chance to have yeah. a really uh, unexpected, but very uh, connected conversation with somebody. And so I really appreciate that definition. So now let's tie it, let's tie it into psychedelics. So um, what would you want to say about psychedelics that we can now blend these two topics together? Um, so can you pull up the, the, Second slide in that slideshow, slide number two there. I don't know how to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no Here we go. So when we talk about psychedelics, we're talking about from, from a clinical perspective, we're talking about a very specific class of drugs. And so your, your, or substances, your um, classic psychedelics. Oh, and I need to say, so a lot of the slides that I use today, um, I didn't rewrite these slides to put them into my own words because they're definitions and references, but I definitely want to make sure that I give the credit to who put this together to that individual. And so this is from Dr. Addy, Peter H. Addy, um, and he has dedicated a great deal of his career to understanding psychedelics and how they work in within psychotherapy. Um, and I got this information because I took a continued education course from him through the company PESI. Um, and he is just a, a brilliant clinician. But I want to make sure I say, hey, the person that actually put all of this together was uh, was Dr. Addy. And I don't want to take that from him. So when we're talking about psychedelics, we've got these are the four classics. So we have LSD. Um, and as you can see here, it is semi synthetic. And we'll come back to how that mechanism of action works or, or meaning from a clinical perspective, what they're doing inside of your brain. Then we have psilocybin, um, aka magic mushrooms, mescaline, which is the, what is that, cactus um, that you can find uh, quite frequently in um, 
the Southwest or, or in Mexico, and then DMT. And one of the things that's really funny that I learned from Dr. Addy actually about DMT is that when they outlawed the, the legislation that outlawed DMT, it actually says that it is illegal to make or produce DMT in any way. And yet DMT is a naturally occurring substance inside our bodies. Our bodies actually make DMT all on their own. So just me living is technically illegal. And the, the reason I point this out is that the law does not, in my opinion, the law does not really take into account the benefits or, or the mechanism of action. It's not looking at that. It's legislation, in my opinion, meant to control the masses. And it was legislation put out to, and, and you know, Dr. Addy goes a lot more into this, but in my opinion, to control specific populations due to fear and due to maintaining power and control. And unfortunately, I'm going to say that was for, you know, our white male leaders that were in uh, politics at that time. Um, and so one of the things that is really interesting to me about medicine is when we are studying these substances, the goal is to understand the what we call the mechanism of action or how does it work in our brain to create a certain state of mind or state of being? How does that interact with our biology, our DNA for, on a microbiology level? And um, I am most familiar, so I'm going to spend most of my time talking about LSD and psilocybin, because those are the two that um, I have personal experience with um, and, and that I've, you know, I've utilized myself. Um, I'm not a big fan of marijuana. I'm in that percentage of cannabis that the cannabis makes me absolutely paranoid. And so I do not enjoy that experience at all. However, I have many clients who utilize that medicinally um, and well. So when we're talking about the psychedelics, we're talking um, for today's purposes, we're talking about these four substances. But one of the things that these four substances do is they alter our state of awareness or our consciousness. And when we look at the data, one of the things that we see is that it creates in our brain a what we define as a mystical experience. And the, the benefit of these, when we go through the research and we start looking, okay, how is this working? How is this working? Um, what's going on for this person? If the individual utilizing the substance does not have a mystical experience, then it doesn't seem to be effective for treating anxiety, depression, PTSD, alcohol um, use or, or substance abuse it doesn't seem to help with those. And so having that, what most people would identify, you know, mystical experiences, somewhat spiritual or very spiritual, it doesn't work unless we connect the substance to having that spiritual experience or that altered state of consciousness. We don't necessarily understand why it's so important. Many of us have our theories. My personal theory is that because it takes away that, that um, oh goodness, what is it called? It, dis, it disinhibits us. 
It, it helps us release ourselves from all of those brain blocks that we have for self-protection that it, in, in my opinion, it allows us to see ourselves and our mind in a deeper way. For me, my personal experience, I found answers to questions that I had had for a very long time. And I think the reason I was able to get there was because it took away my brain's natural protective barrier that was like, no, 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 we can't look at that trauma because it's too scary. Um, but it doesn't work if we don't have the mystical experience, according to the data, it doesn't work. It's not beneficial without the mystical experience. Yeah. And that makes sense to me. I mean, having, having done a few of these things, um, the, the feeling of the recognition that my, either my ego is changed and often severely diminished so that there's like the whole grounded centered part of me who can now look at the world without all that protection uh, from those like, egoic parts. And then there's this idea that when reality changes in front of you, you get the, the opportunity to kind of question what's real mm -hmm. or what isn't, what's important, what's not. And not in the, um, you know, for folks who have never used these things, there's this propensity to, to think that, you know, someone takes this and reality is completely strange. They might end up hurting themselves. And in rare cases, those kinds of things happen. But almost everyone senses that this will go back to normal, that what's mm -hmm. in front of them is also connected to reality. They're not exactly thinking it's completely not reality. And right. they tend to have the opportunity to be inside their head, thinking about their relationships, thinking about their mm -hmm. connection to the outer world, thinking about their own behaviors and what what matters and what doesn't, what works and what isn't, what's, what used to be protective but isn't helpful anymore. And right. my experience has been with myself and a whole host of others who uh, I know have used these things, there has been dramatic growth and progress in their own uh, being, uh, taking right. chances to have experiences with these things. Absolutely. Well, and yeah. one of the things that's really interesting that we see in the data is that after you've experienced this, most people walk away more altruistic. They, mm -hmm. they are more mm -hmm. generous. They are more accepting. They're gentler with people around them like it. The, the negative side effects just don't seem to exist in the data. And there's actually a slide that I pulled directly out of Professor Addy's thing. And the, the data is down there. It's the, the graph that talks about the danger of these substances. That Yep, that's the one. Bill, if you want to pull up that, that graph right there, as you look at this graph, what you can see is that the most harmful substance is actually the legal substance, alcohol, that more harm to others or harm to the user occurs with alcohol. Um, and so for those who are not watching this live, for those who are just listening to the podcast, I'll go ahead and read through a lot of these, but your most dangerous substances are going to be alcohol as being number one. And that is the case across the board. I have yet to see a study that demonstrates that alcohol is less dangerous than other mind altering substances. It is by far and away the most dangerous to self and to others when you're overusing it. Now, I'm not saying that alcohol is bad. I personally will drink a dirty lemonade while I'm 
baking dinner to take the edge off of anxiety while I am, you know, making dinner. I have seven children and my, I have two, my two youngest are, are high special needs children. So anxiety is high. I drink a little bit of alcohol. It takes the edge off of my anxiety so that I am a much nicer mother in the afternoon. But when you drink to the place of significant mind altering places, alcohol becomes very dangerous. Your second most dangerous substance, according to this graph, and this is where some of the graphs will get, you know, depending on the population studied, you'll see some minor switches into what's more dangerous. But your second most dangerous is going to be heroin, followed by crack, followed by cocaine, followed by methamphetamine, followed by another legal substance, tobacco. Um, cannabis is, if you're looking at this graph, is substantially lower on the quote unquote danger scale of this graph, um, but it's it's in the middle. And then we start looking at a whole bunch of other illegal substances such as ketamine. Ketamine is a phenomenal medication um, for uh, treatment resistant depression. And there are actually ketamine clinics. Ketamine is not illegal. Uh, my husband is a nurse anesthetist. And so he has ketamine available to him, ketamine and fentanyl available to him all the time because of his work, not for, not for personal use. He's never done it for personal use, but for medicinal use, it is utilized in medicine quite regularly. And even ketamine at very high doses is used in the emergency room all the time to set bones, to um, help with pain management, same with fentanyl. But you have to be really careful with, with the doses of those substances. Um, your next one, which I would say is probably one of the most addictive substances is, is benzodiazepines um, all the way down. But then as you're looking at this, the danger to others or danger to self, now we're looking at magic mushrooms is the least dangerous according to this scale. Um, and only slightly more dangerous is LSD. Um, and what the scale is saying is, and I think on the magic mushrooms, we don't really see any harm to others, but we do see some harm to self. And usually what we're seeing are things like I decided to go for a walk and I fell down and I scraped my knee type of stuff. Um, it's incredibly rare. You cannot overdose on magic mushrooms. If you eat or consume tons and tons, you're going to throw up before it does anything. Like you physically cannot handle that much mushroom in your system. Um, and, and usually it's unsupervised people that have put themselves in not the wisest situation that are going to, you know, stumble and fall or, or harm themselves. I think we've got one um, documented. If, if my memory is serving me correctly, we have one case of death related to magic mushrooms. And it was somebody who jumped from a high place um, thinking, probably thinking that they could fly. It's just it's very rare for somebody to be harmed by this versus something like alcohol or tobacco that is used. Uh, what's, what's the word I'm like? I, I wouldn't say it's used less. It's just, we don't talk about it as much. It's strange. Cause you know, you and I, I don't know how old you are. You're probably younger than I am, but um, <laughs> you and I grew up in an age where, you know, our parents were watching TV shows where constantly people were using uh, drugs and causing harm to society or to themselves. Mm -hmm. 
And you look at these things again, LSD, magic mushrooms, uh, ketamine, and, and I would throw on some degree ecstasy or MDMA on that list. Mm -hmm. The research coming back about these things is phenomenal. It, these things do a better job than the opiates and other drugs or other modalities that we've been using yep. to try to help depression or PTSD. And again, we just have to face the facts that the U.S. government really was at least misrepresented, if not lied, about what these things do to us and what the risks are, why people are getting you know, arrested or what, what kind right. of harm people are doing on these things. These things actually tend to be very helpful to the human psyche when used appropriately and responsibly and with uh, therapeutic help. Absolutely. In fact, when I was doing this continued education course um, recently, Professor Addy explained that MDMA was actually, it went to a Supreme Court judge um, as the recommendation as to whether or not to make it legal or not. MDMA went with the Supreme Court recommending that it be a schedule three substance, meaning you could access it with a prescription. And despite that, so, you know, the Supreme Court judges, of course, looking at the medical data and the research and the science, because MDMA was one of the best, most well studied um, when, you know, back in the 70s, when the war on drugs occurred, and that the Supreme Court judge looked at all of the data and said, okay, under medical supervision, this is very beneficial and works better than SSRIs. It works better than SNRIs. It works better than, you know, all of the things that TCAs, the things that they were utilizing to treat anxiety and depression, MDMA worked better than all of those with a much lower threshold for negative side effects, recommended that it be available by prescription only and taken under the supervision of a licensed medical provider. And um, was it Reagan's representative ignored that and made it a schedule one, meaning that it is a federal offense to utilize it, which also shut down the research on those substances. And so we had, I mean, just just imagine where we would be today with the mental health crisis if the government hadn't overstepped and stopped all of this research. That research is just beginning to take back off. Um, most of these, I know LSD and magic mushrooms are in, I believe, the third and final phase of research where they're going to be able to then come back and say, hey, we have enough this longitude study, we've been studying it long enough now that we're going to go back to the government and say, hey, we need to shift the way that we're looking at these. We have the data. Here it is. Because even magic mushrooms, um, MDMA, so I know from, from what I've researched and from what I've experienced, um, MDMA, um, so ecstasy is on here. Bill, I don't know if you see that. It's very low on this graph as well. So ecstasy or MDMA, LSD, magic mushrooms, um, ketamine, that they work better than antidepressants, all of the antidepressants and mood stabilizers. Uh, well, and I can't say all, most of them with a much lower threshold for negative side effects to the point of if you have PTSD, a, what we call single episode PTSD, and we should probably talk about the difference between PTSD and complex PTSD, but single episode PTSD, that magic mushrooms are considered almost curative 
in the majority of cases. Um, that is not the same, you know, and, and a lot of people get confused. That is not the same as complex PTSD. Complex PTSD is very different. So your regular PTSD is you have these isolated one to, I don't know, I'll say five incidents of severe trauma. So we're going to look at things like car accidents, um, natural disasters, some war uh, PTSD, because you have like these pieces that you can pull out where it was, everything was fine when I was at war, except for this, this, and this. The magic mushrooms is actually, people are able to take about three doses and they're fine. Their symptoms are gone and very rarely do they need to come back for a um, maintenance dose later. Complex PTSD means that the trauma was experienced over and over and over again consistently. So that's where we're going to be looking at child abuse, religious trauma, spousal abuse, um, our veterans that were exposed to what we say downrange um, for extended periods of time where they were consistently having those traumatic events, you know, being shot at or, or whatnot. So complex PTSD is repeated traumas that were consistent over a significant period of time. And the, the utilization of psilocybin for that, it reduces the symptoms. It's very helpful but you need a lot more maintenance doses moving on. But then what we're talking about is every three months you have your maintenance dose and you just consistently get better and better and better. Um, so even st with no negative side effects. So, you know, your most common negative side effects with psychotropic medication is going to be sexual dysfunction. Uh, you, you always have the black box warning of it could make you very suicidal. Uh, when you take it, you're going to have bowel changes, GI upset, um, nausea, vomiting, weight gain is a big one, um, being very sluggish, like feeling like you're walking through mud. Th those are common side effects, being dizzy. Those are really common side effects for a lot of psychotropic medication. Now, I'm a believer in psychotropic medication. I have seen many people who absolutely need that help in order to function in their daily life. But if we could give them something like MDMA or magic mushrooms where they are dosed, the negative side effects are super minuscule. Hang on. Let me cancel that. I've got a little warning on my computer there. If we can get rid of those negative side effects and also have more effective treatment, why is the government in the way of this? Yeah, no, no, totally. Uh when I think of the most transformative experiences in my life, the two that I always come back to was my first experience with MDMA or ecstasy and my, mm -hmm. and my only experience with ayahuasca. And they were just huge. Um, I tell people when I did MDMA, it felt like 10 years of therapy in a single night. It, it felt like right. Um, my ego vanished and I was able to confront my own unhealthiness and the way that I mm -hmm. behaved in my relationship with my wife. I was able to confront it in a way that I never would have been able to do without years and years of therapy. And uh, from that day forward, I was just different. I was, I was a different human being than I was that came coming to that experience the day before. And, yeah. and so these things have deep value. Now we ought to probably speak for just well, a moment, how these drugs are different with each other too. Uh, in yeah, terms of, absolutely. I know you've got a little note in the outline about that. Yeah, well, and really quickly, I want to say, Bill, you're not alone. What you just described 
is what the majority of people describe when they are on these, that it's years of therapy. So in my own clinic, I have an eight month wait list. I am completely booked and it's, you know, I feel like I'm an effective therapist. I would like to think that that I do good work. I get really good reviews and whatnot for my client, but I have an eight month wait list because therapy takes so much time. So I usually take a client and I'm going to work with them six to nine months before they are feeling significantly better. Whereas when you take these substances, what we're seeing is after one experience, things are substantially better. And then your time with the therapist looks more like three, four, six sessions. And, and we're, we're going to talk about why when you're doing this from a therapeutic standpoint, why do we need these three to six sessions? That, that's what I'll put in there is, is three to six sessions. Why do we need them? What are we working on? But if I could help people in three to six sessions where they were substantially better and those gains that that efficacy was maintained for years, the mental health crisis in this country would look very different. I don't think we'd be in crisis anymore, to be completely honest, yeah. because life happens. We're going to have difficulty. I'm not going to ever be out of a job. That's for sure. Even with these substances, I'm not going to be out of a job because life is hard. But getting people from a place of struggle or even as far as complete dysfunction back up to I'm doing well, I'm productive, I'm self-sufficient. It's yeah, there needs to be legislation change. So go ahead, Bill. Um, and I just know you had a spot in the outline about how there are a, a kind of um, a binary way of seeing these in terms of the effects that these things have. Um, yeah. You had a note in there about yeah, antagonist versus agonist. Right. So, right. So if you pull up that, um, the four, the classic psychedelics, again, we're going to talk about this um, and we'll kind of go through those slides in order. So, um, what ends up happening, and and really, I want to put a disclaimer out there, where people are utilizing these and it becomes dangerous is when they are mixing the psychedelic with their psychotropic medication. And the reason is that the psychedelic, so the ones that you see here, the majority of those are serotonin agonists, meaning they amplify the production of serotonin in your brain. Now, if you're, and then, so an agonist is an amplifier. An antagonist is a blocker or a suppressor. And what that means is that when you're taking, for example, LSD, this says here that, you know, it talks about which, um, no, this is not, yep, yeah, there it is in the psilocybin. We're talking about the 5H2A, you know, receptors in the brain and blah, blah, blah. And, and this is going to be very, very simplified. But what happens is, how that substance is binding to the proteins in your brain and, and what it does when it binds to that. So like these LSD psilocybin, they bind to the serotonin receptors in such a way that you produce a lot more serotonin. And so when you're taking it with your psychotropic medication, let's say I'm taking this with Prozac, what happens with the Prozac is the Prozac has already bound to that same protein in the brain and the LSD or the psilocybin cannot bind because they work against each other. And so the safest way, if, if, if you're interested in, in doing this on your own, again, this is educational purposes only, 
you don't want to be taking any medication, any psychotropic medication while you are utilizing the psychedelic because your your risk for harm will go up. But the greatest risk is that you're not going to feel anything. If I'm taking Prozac and psilocybin at the same time, I'm going to have a much harder time achieving a mystical experience because they work against each other. There's that antagonist with that agonist. Um, and the way we, again, we don't really understand that mechanism of action. I mean, we know what it does, but we don't necessarily understand why that's effective. But what the psychedelics do from our understanding is that it increases the serotonin production substantially. Um, and, and for whatever reason, that resets the brain's chemistry. And then when we come off of it, our brain is able to maintain the healthy levels of daily production on its own is my understanding of, of how that works. So that's your mechanism of action. And that's that agonist versus the antagonist. And then you also have the inhibitors. So if I'm doing SSRIs, you've got selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors and an, an inhibitor will block is a partial blocker. And so what that ends up meaning is it partially blocks. So it tricks the brain. So when I'm taking Prozac, my understanding, and there's probably a neuroscientist or a microbiologist out there going, no, Sarah, you're oversimplifying it. So I just want to say I am oversimplifying this um, just for today's purposes. Um, but what happens is that um, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor or your SNRI, your ser serotonin norepinephrine, uh, reuptake inhibitors, what they end up doing is there's a partial block. So it tricks the brain into making more serotonin. And that's, that's how they're supposed, that's how they supposedly work is by increasing the serotonin in the brain because it's partially blocking. So the brain is like, Ooh, I need to make more of this. And it does. So it's not surprising that the psychedelics are so effective at treating anxiety and depression because it amplifies serotonin production in a way that these psychotropic medications just cannot um, in safe ways. Yeah. It, again, it reminds me just the fact that um, we think of this in a modern age of 2023 20, and, you know, maybe for the last, whatever, 30, 40, 50 years, we've been debating the efficacy of these uh, substances, but uh, this stuff goes back forever. I mean, mm -hmm. people in, uh, social systems uh, for hundreds of thousands of years probably have been using medicine tools. There's been shamans and tribes who have helped the members of that tribe uh, enter a transcendent experience and find meaning in it. And so maybe is there anything you want to say about the history of this stuff that. Yeah. Um, um, like you said, it's been used for eons and eons. I mean, as far back as we can trace the human existence, we can see evidence that these substances have been used. And I cannot remember the source, um, but I remember when, you know, early in my research on, on this. So I got interested in psychedelics. Number one, I left Mormonism um, where my religious structure was. The use of this is 
wrong, it's sinful and whatnot. And I got interested. I left Mormonism and then I had clients coming to me that had self-medicated with some of these things and they were getting better faster than any of my other clients. And I was like, okay, I gotta, I gotta learn how to, what, what's going on. I want to understand this. I'm very much a researcher in the sense of, if I don't understand how something works, you better believe I'm going to go dive into the research until I get it because I have a thirst for knowledge and understanding. And I remember early in that um, there was a, I want to say it was the, the Mayans, um, and and I might be wrong on that, but what they would do is when they they lost somebody, there was almost a prescribed time for grief, where they would say you cannot use the psilocybin, um, you're not allowed to because your your body needs to grieve and miss and hurt in order for healing, and we're going to talk about set and setting um, here in a little bit to talk about the importance of you know, utilizing these not to escape the emotional experience, but to heal from it. And so I believe, again, believe it was the Mayan culture where they had a prescribed time for grief. And then when you hit the end of that prescribed time, you went through heavy doses of psilocybin to have that mystical experience with the purposes of sending your ancestor off, saying your final goodbyes and coming out of that as a productive citizen. And what would happen is the tribe would gather around the grieving family. They would, you know, just shower them with love, allow them to, you know, I'm going to just modernize it, stay in bed all day, not have to cook, not have to function. They had their community come in for a prolonged period of time and take care of them so that they could focus on the difficulty of the emotion. And then when that grief time was over and it was substantial, it was not like a week or two, we're talking about several months. And then they would utilize the substance to give that away and, and come back. And, you know, I want to make sure that we say that these substances don't erase our emotions, rather they help us, view and experience them differently. Um, but yeah, people have been using plant medicine to self-medicate effectively and ineffectively for eons. I, these substances, all of them, the ayahuasca, psilocybin, LSD is um, has some synthetic pieces. So when you look at the makeup of the substance, that's going to be different. But these full plant, natural, organic substances They've been utilized. Cannabis has been utilized for eons and eons and eons for bringing communities together, for healing um, and and with all kinds of spiritual implications, medical, medicinal implications. They've been used forever. Um, I think you hit so. on a really important point, too, which is if you're using conscious altering tools let me say it differently. If you're using drugs to escape problems rather than to dive into them, mm -hmm. I think that's what you're pointing at, which is if, if it's used as a way to kind of band-aid over something so I can feel good today and just completely avoid anything that's going on negative in my life, that's going to eventually come to bite you in the rear end. But the way these are being used is as tools to dive into what isn't working or what's not comfortable mm -hmm. or what's hurting. And that seems Absolutely. to be a completely different modality, I guess, than, than using, uh, 
using drugs as an escape from the the negative part of being a human being. Right. Well, and I would say anytime somebody is trying to escape from their emotions, you're going to see behavioral dysfunction. And I'm not talking about, oh, you shouldn't do that. I'm talking about that internal source of I have to escape over and over and over again and nothing's getting better um, or because I'm escaping things in my own life are not working according to my own set of morals and standards. Um, so in my field, we talk a lot about the difference between use, overuse, abuse, addiction. So that's kind of our, I'm going to say the four points on that spectrum of utilizing mind altering substances. Um, use is not generally looked at as a problematic Thing, depending on the intention that that we approach the use with overuse, we, there might be some red flags, we might have some concern. But then when we get into abuse, and then addiction, almost always we're looking at that abuse and addiction comes when we look at that study of addiction, the person is hurting, they feel very detached from their familial organization or their community organization. They feel very alone, like they don't belong. And they're trying to escape difficult or uncomfortable emotions. And so, yeah, when we look at I'm utilizing things to escape or get away from the increase that we're going to misuse or abuse and then become addictive, addicted becomes much, much higher. Now, having said that, it's pretty hard to get addicted to LSD or psilocybin. Um, it doesn't work that way. Uh, it, if, that's if not I, my experience anyway. I, right, if you use right. those, you don't want to touch them again for a while. You Right. No, it takes, yeah. I think the, I, I want to say it's like a 10 to 14 day recovery time. If you use magic mushrooms at high doses today and I do it again tomorrow, nothing's going to happen. <laughs> I might even feel pretty sick. Like I'm going to get pretty nauseous and probably puke. Um, but I'm not going to have the the same effect. Now with ecstasy, MDMA, can, that absolutely can be misused because that one affects your dopamine levels or that reward system in your brain a little bit more than the other ones do. And you can have that repeated high. Again, though, when you're when you're talking about set and setting. So if you want to pull up that slide bill that talks about set and setting, let's go ahead and go there because I think that's important. Is um, it the one I've got there below right now? The the black uh, background? No, that one. I that one's the there we go. That one. Yep. Set and setting. So when we talk about utilizing mind altering substances, we've got to pay attention to our set and setting. And again, I, I took this um, the slide from Peter Addy simply because it's just it's easier to I mean, I could. I don't want to plagiarize, but there's really no other way to rewrite this where I'm not getting overly wordy for today's purposes. So the set and setting really is the way that we describe where we are cognitively. You know, how are we thinking about this? How are we approaching it? So if I am the set is is inside my brain, psychological mindset, cognitive. So if I am approaching magic mushrooms from a recreational perspective. And I'm like, hey, I just want to go on a good trip. 
I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but it decreases the therapeutic benefit you could have because as you begin to trip um, or as you're, as you experience that mystical experience, if I go into that in the mindset of, I want to go on a healing journey, I want to understand fill in the blank. You know, I want to understand. So for me, when I did, so I'll just say I did psilocybin uh, with the same schedule as the Johns Hopkins study for psilocybin. Because when I did this personal, when I used this personally, I said, I'm approaching this from a clinical standpoint. I'm going to track my own experiences in such a way that I am adding to the research that is out there for the therapeutic use of these substances. And so I dosed it and spread those doses out and did my set and setting in as, as identical to the Johns Hopkins study as I could get. Um, and I believe that's on my, um, I believe the Johns Hopkins study is cited on my citation slide here. So as I approach utilization of these substances with the mindset of healing, increased understanding, um, increased connection with the world around me because I want to observe um, things around me. Anybody who's utilized these can talk about how everything seems to slow down and you're able to observe the world in like a fractal, like moment by moment, which deepens your understanding and increases the way that you see things in a, in a beautiful way. Um, if I'm going into it for that purpose, I'm most likely going to get the outcome that I'm looking for. Now, I, I want to make sure that we're setting an expectation. You don't go in saying, I'm going to get an answer to this and come out expecting that answer. Rather, you will have increased understanding as you're searching for answers. And, and so the way that we approach it in our head, we've got to come into it for our therapeutic purposes intentionally um, with a certain goal in mind. And as we do that, the therapeutic benefits are substantial. They're, they're what we call statistically significant um, in, in the research world. Our setting is also very important, um, meaning this is my environment and my relationships with other people. So before I did my psilocybin research for myself, um, which was highly therapeutic um, and, and helped me heal from CPTSD better than EMDR had better than years of therapy had like, like you, Bill, it was like years of therapy. And I, I've done my two doses so far. I've got my third one scheduled um, here for in the next couple of weeks. Um, but as I, as I did that, that interpersonal relationship, my husband served as my guide. And so when we're doing this therapeutically, we generally recommend that you have a guide with you, somebody that is there that is either mildly um, utilizing as well, so much, much smaller doses, or that isn't using them at all. So that way, if things start to go south, if you get a bad trip and whatnot, which is less common when you're following this as a medicinal schedule than if you're utilizing it recreationally. And we don't necessarily understand why that is. Um, 
just that it is. But if my husband was uncomfortable with my use and had expressed that to me before I utilized, his anxiety, his fear, his discomfort is naturally going to increase my discomfort, which increases chances that it's going to be a, a much more uncomfortable experience. Um, and, and I'm going to say this, you know, anxiety is the most contagious disease on, on the planet. I, I, most of us can say, hey, I've been sitting in like a, a work meeting or in a family environment and everybody's having a good time. And then somebody walks in who is in a much higher state of anxiety and the mood completely shifts in the room. And so when we're talking about our interpersonal experiences, if we're afraid of, oh, what is my mom or my dad or what is my coworker or my spouse or my friend? What are they going to think of me? What is their judgment of me going to be if I'm in that higher state of anxiety as I utilize the substance? I'm more likely to have a bad trip or an uncomfortable experience. Now, having said that, bad trips can be just as educational. They're just uncomfortably, uncomfortably so. Um, and then your environmental is make sure you're in a place where you're comfortable, um, like physically comfortable, you know, in a bedroom. Um, if you're doing it out in nature, you want to make sure that it's an environment that you're familiar with um, and and that you feel safe in. Because if I'm, you know, doing this in a in a hotel in, you know, downtown San Antonio where the crime rate is high and I'm a little bit nervous about that, once again, I'm increasing my risk. That's not going to go well, probably. <laughs> nope, nope. Because yeah. that intention that you go in, if you go into mm -hmm. it scared, you are more likely to have a terrifying experience rather than a calming experience. Yeah, no, no, that totally makes sense. Uh, that's been my experience uh, as well. Uh, there's some really cool things. I know like John Hopkins put together a musical playlist, for instance, which mm -hmm. is a lot of classical music, but really designed to be on a trajectory and, and help you, uh, prompt you to sort of to go into your head and maybe think mm -hmm. in certain directions. Uh, I thought that they was, also it, it have, creative. right. They also have a, a therapist there or a, a, somebody that's been trained as a guide to, um, help guide you through with insightful questions. Like one of the things is don't interpret their experience. You're going to ask questions of curiosity to enhance the experience if people are getting stuck. Um, and that's, so when we talk about the therapeutic use of these, you know, specifically most of my research on the therapeutic use has been psilocybin, mostly because it's pretty easy for most people to get their hands on. Um, but yeah, the, the goal of your guide is not to interpret. Remember, we come back to that internal and external source. Your guide is not supposed to say, oh, this means ABC for you, but rather, what does this mean for you? What is your body trying to tell you? Those, those types of questions. Yeah. So let's go into what these things do or what what's happening. Um, maybe talk for a moment uh, about... Uh, psychedelics and their use and how they're being used uh, in the medical community and yeah. what uh, what connections you'd want to make there. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a slide for that um, that talks about, let's see, keep going. I think it's earlier. Is that the one? Nope. Go up. That one. Yep. I think it's okay. that one. Let's see. Yep. All righty. So LSD assisted psychotherapy 
psychotherapy. These are the research studies that are going on right now trying to, um, and, and most of these are in phase three, meaning that's the final phase before we, they go to whatever entity it is, the FDA or whatever entity it is to try and get LSD and psilocybin as a schedule three instead of a schedule one, meaning available to the public with a prescription from a doctor. So LSD has been utilized and found to be very effective for treating alcohol dependence, um, anxiety associated with life-threatening illness, meaning I'm so anxious that I'm suicidal or having a, so self-harm or harm to others that LSD has been very effective in the treatment of anxiety. Um, and so those are the two for, for LSD. Um, MDMA, we're not talking about MDMA because it is not a psychedelic. It's, I can't remember the name of this. Is it, is it a hallucinogen? Um, should I can't remember? I think, anyway, I think it's thrown into that category. I although think it is. I, I don't think in perception of like your physical state, I don't think there's much difference there, but um, they seem to pl put it in that category, even though right. it isn't quite like the others. Well, and the reason for that is because what is its mechanism of action? What is it doing inside your brain? Um, and so the the psychedelics we're seeing more of it's um, acting on the serotonin receptors and on certain proteins in the brain, whereas the hallucinogens work differently and bind with different proteins in the brain. And so even though it doesn't necessarily make you hallucinate, the the way that it interacts with your body's chemistry is is how they get that class, I believe. Um, but MDMA is also very, very effective in treating anxiety, uh, treatment resistant anxiety, better than psychotropic medication is what we're seeing. Psilocybin assisted um, psychotherapy is amazing at treating obsessive compulsive disorder. And I'm talking about I mean, yes, mild OCD. A lot, a lot of times we like to joke, oh, you've got AC OCD because you clean so well or or whatnot. And those are those are, you know, what I would consider OCD tendencies rather than OC or obsessive compulsive tendencies versus obsessive compulsive disorder. Those with true obsessive compulsive disorder have a very difficult time functioning in their environment. And psilocybin has just been amazing at helping people go from being trapped inside their own homes to functioning in society again. Um, it's done a lot for anxiety associated with advanced cancer. And really what we're seeing in the research is that people who are terrified of pending death are suddenly approaching death with curiosity and a level of comfort so that the quality of those last, you know, days, weeks, months, or years is so much improved. They're able to connect as they say their goodbyes. It's, it's just been incredible. I love re reading the, the research on this. Um, it has helped quite a bit with tobacco dependence, alcohol dependence, and depression. And then the one that's not on here is, is PTSD. Um, I could not find the... Uh, the citation for PTSD. So I didn't uh, put this on here. Um, again, I borrowed a great deal of this from Professor Addy and somewhere in a pile of papers that's like three feet thick. I have it for PTSD and complex PTSD. I know like with PTSD um, and I think it was MDMA that they did recently where uh, they took a group of people, they had three therapeutic sessions with MDMA 
they get to the end of those three sessions and 76% of the participants in the research reported that the PTSD for all intents and purposes was gone. And Mm -hmm. my understanding is, and correct me if I'm wrong, my understanding is up until this moment, we've been able to sort of give people coping skills. We've been Mm -hmm. able to diminish PTSD to some degree, but no real effect at getting rid of it. And so these drugs are opening a whole new pathway. Absolutely. So I'm not familiar with the study you're talking about, but we're seeing very similar results with very high doses of psilocybin. So when I say very high doses, I'm talking about like four to six grams. I know a lot of people will be like, oh, that's not that high. But we're talking really high doses Mm -hmm. of psilocybin. And yes, we're seeing that. So with I would say the numbers range anywhere from 75% to 85% efficacy at post-traumatic stress disorder. So again, remember, classic PTSD is I can identify, you know, the the traumas that I have. It's not that it's not like child abuse. And I want to make that distinction because a lot of people have complex PTSD go into this expecting to be cured. We are not seeing the same results in complex PTSD. It's not curative the way that it is for classic PTSD. So the symptoms that they're talking about are things like hypervigilance. So I can't go anywhere without high levels of anxiety and constantly, you know, screening for something's going to jump out at me, or I'm going to get hit by a car again, or somebody's going to pull a gun on me, or, you know, the wind is blowing and I survived a tornado and I'm completely shutting down. So that's what hypervigilance looks like. Um, flashbacks, we're seeing, you know, basically they just disappear. So I'm no longer getting triggered and then being transported in time in my brain back to that traumatic event that is disappearing. And then the PTSD nightmares are disappearing. So when we look at PTSD, what we see are people who have a difficult time interfacing with their environment Because their anxiety levels that something bad is going to happen again, this constant, like I always feel doomed. It does, I'm going to turn the corner and my life is going to be threatened. They become oftentimes paralyzed. Um, I once had a client where a car backfired in my parking lot and he jumped across my couch, grabbed me, and pulled me to the floor in order to cover me up so that I would not get shot because a car backfired. That is the type of PTSD that is being, that this is being utilized for. And yeah, after, so the psilocybin study, it was after two doses, the majority of people did not need to come back in for a touch up. And then the, the big chunk came in for a third dose. And most of them said, it's gone and they have to like their longitude study. So we're checking in with them at 18 months. We're checking in with them at two years, three years, four years. They're still saying that they're fine. And that is unheard of. The most effective that I would say prior to this, what that that's probably the most commonly used quote unquote cure for PTSD, but it was never really a cure, was EMDR. So eye movement, EMD, desensitization and reprocessing. That's what that stands for. And that's where you know, you move your finger, you have vib- alternating vibrating paddles in your hand while you talk about or in in a way relive that traumatic experience yes it was effective but the the effects were not 
long lasting in the same way that these substances are. And you had to go in a lot for touch ups. Um, and it, it not at the numbers of 75 to 85%. You know, I, I'm going to say EMDR was effective at reducing symptoms. I'm going to say maybe oh, it's been a long time. Don't quote me, maybe 60%, which is still statistically significant. Um, and the funny thing is, is that insurance companies will reimburse. If I'm utilizing EMDR in clinic, which I do, insurance companies will pay me for that. It's illegal for me to take somebody through psilocybin or LSD. I could lose my license for that. And yet it's over 80% effective um, it, in very few sessions. Like for the insurance company, it would be financially beneficial for them to approve this because we're talking about six sessions rather than nine months of weekly sessions. Um, why, why we're struggling so much? I just don't know to, to get this yeah. legalized for therapists to use therapists and doctors. I would say, you know, my comfort level, if, if it was legalized today, my comfort level of utilizing this and being that guide in my clinic, I would be good. Um, because it's not, it's not complicated. The skills I need to be a guide, I learned very early on in my master's program, just active listening skills and getting curious. That's, that's what you need to do to be the guide. It's not difficult. Most therapists would be effective guides. So it's, yeah, just frustrates me. I feel (laughs) no, no, no. I totally get it. It, I, I, I sometimes sit and just try to think about uh, why that is. I mean, is it the lobbying power that the drug companies have? But as you're pointing out, the insurance companies should be coming from the complete opposite direction, which is we want to minimize uh, our having right. to pay things out and control our cost more. Uh, so you think they would be on board? Um, I, I don't know. And the level of dishonesty that happened in the 50s, 60s, and 70s around these things I can't exactly figure out why on a mass scale we misrepresented or flat out lied about what effect these things have. Um, But here we are, we're 2023 and these things are starting to be used. Uh, We're looking at the data. We're seeing what uh, has the best effect, such as what it seems to be is combining both the medicines with a therapeutic approach, a therapist in the room who's asking some questions and making sure that, the person is safe and, and feels safe. Um, yeah. Maybe talk for a moment on that personal level. Like what, what are the results that you're seeing? What are the results that uh, your colleagues are seeing? What are, right. what are the experience that the clients that you help or that those around you are helping? What is, what is that experience looking like? Absolutely. So before I go into that, it's important for us, I think, to identify what in the research, what is the mystical experience? So if you want to pull up the slide you've got there right now, Bill, and then the next slide after that. So researchers appear to believe that having a mystical experience is the mechanism of action of psychedelic therapy. And we don't understand why other than, you know, I just want to reinforce people who take the substances, but not in a high enough dose to achieve a mystical experience. They don't have the same therapeutic outcome as those that are taking the dose at higher levels to achieve that mystical experience. Um, And then Professor Addy put this slide together 
Um, so the next slide on what is a mystical experience? And there's a lot of data on um, this, but they have four factors that would qualify something as being a mystical experience. And the first one is that it is mystical, <laughs> that you're going to feel internal unity, um, undifferentiated awareness, um, unitary consciousness. You are going to feel in awe um, th that it's you feel differently. There's going to be external unity, meaning you feel in touch with the things around you. So, you know, when you're experiencing fractal changes or you can see the, you know, like pigmentation of colors in a, in a brand new way, you're going to feel connected with your surrounding surroundings and then inner subjectivity or a sense of life or living presence in all things. This is where people talk about my chair came alive. Um, so that would be a part of that. And then letter D under this is objectivity and reality. Um, noetic quality, a sense that the experience was a source of objective truth, meaning that when you come out of it, you feel like what you gain from it is objective, that it's fact. So you, we have subjective and objective. Objective means I feel like what I gained is factually true. Um, and then sacredness, it's special to you. You might share it with others, but you're going to feel a sense of protectiveness around that experience. It might not be something that you are singing from the rooftops, um, that it felt divine, that it feels holy or or reverenced. Um, factor two is that you that it's a positive mood. And this is really interesting because most people who have a mystical experience that is uncomfortable will still come out of it and feel like it was a positive experience. I didn't like what it felt like in the moment, but later on when I'm coming out of it, I still feel that sense of it helped it. I felt connected to a divine um, and, and that it gave me a great sense of, you know, under positive mood, letter A, deeply felt sense of peace and joy, which is really odd because most of the time when humans experience something that makes them uncomfortable, they don't come away later and say, I just loved that and I would do it again. Um, a lot of people will say, oh, that was really uncomfortable and I need some time and space before I do it again. But they, most people will report that that uncomfortable experience still left them with something special, peaceful and joyful. Um, factor three is time and space, meaning that it lasts for a while. Um, so there's a non-spatial quality. You don't necessarily feel as grounded, like you're not noticing gravity type things. Not so much that you're floating and feel out of control, but that your spatial awareness is different, that time is endless, that space is infinite, um, and that there's transcension transition is that even a word transcending of um time and, and space boundaries and then factor four is ineffability um which is it is difficult to put into words what you saw what you felt like and what you experienced almost like that sense of there are no words 
to explain this. And, and subsequently, people who have near-death experiences, that's one of the common things that we that we hear. I can't describe the beauty. If, if I do so, I feel like it's never enough. Um, and so those are the, from a research perspective, that's what we are looking to identify a mystical experience. Um, I'll just say two things here, which is uh, one of them, when you say objectivity, it, it, I want to speak to that. It's not that people, because for folks who haven't done these things, it's not that people come out of it going like, oh my goodness, I was on another planet. I know it's real. It's <laughs> that whatever they learned there, they walk away and the usefulness of the tools they gained are real. That I, right. I walked away going like, wow, I couldn't have gotten that insight any other way. And that insight <laughs> then proceeds to help me show up differently and better going forward. You know, if we know better, Absolutely. we do better. And then the other one you, you spoke to is this idea that even when people have a bad trip, they tend to report that the trip was still useful. And mm -hmm. I was always, I've always been told the medicine is the teacher and the medicine <laughs> takes you where it needs you to go. And, and I've had bad trips. I've done mushrooms and been so alone and so unhappy uh, in the trip because it, it wasn't, it wasn't positive. And then, you know, two days later, a week later, looking back on that trip, it was still deeply useful to me putting me making certain connections in my own life, making certain connections with people around me or my environment. And I wouldn't take any of these experiences back, even the ones that were, as you put it, very negative in the moment, not very uncomfortable, I think is the right word, because I was right. really alone and, uh, and, and was not enjoying the experience. Well, and it's important to recognize uncomfortable does not equal bad. You know, one of the things that I experienced um, when I was an active Mormon is that any emotion or experience that was uncomfortable, somehow Satan, an evil spirit, was involved in that. And as a mental health professional, when I'm working with people through difficult struggle, I'm teaching clients to get comfortable staying in the discomfort long enough to work through it so that it can heal, so that they can understand it better. So uncomfortable does not equal bad. Uncomfortable is uncomfortable. Uncom discomfort is a great place for learning. And if we approach, if I have a negative trip, what can I still learn from this? What can I gain? You're still going to get that, that insight. But yeah, most people who have had the bad trips, I never have. I, my bad trip is with cannabis. It makes me feel like everybody's going to try and come kill me. So I'm not a big fan for me of cannabis. However, I see lots of my clients utilize it for managing day-to-day -day anxiety, helping them sleep, increasing appetite, those types of things. And so when it works for you, it works. Um, I'm not one of those people. However, psilocybin um, was very enlightening for for me. So again, I did, I followed the same schedule as Johns Hopkins. So, um, and I'm going to speak very personally here because one of the things that I'm doing with my book, um, one of my goals in my clinic is to, is self-help through stories. Um, and I've gotten to a place in my life where I am comfortable talking about the details. I do want to give a trigger warning. Um, I'm going to be talking about child abuse specifically some sexual child abuse um, in this. So I have a diagnosis of complex PTSD. And as I wrote my book, my goal in writing that book was to be real and 
raw. I did not want to whitewash what it was like because I feel that people gain so much when they can read something and say, yeah, this is me too. And this is, this is that storyline. But writing that book and then going through what's called the first round of editing was content editing. And I had my editor who I love, like she didn't do anything wrong, but the way that she approached that was re-traumatizing for me in very significant ways. She would say, this isn't believable. You know, how did this happen? I can't believe that this did this. And she wasn't doubting my experiences. Rather, she was saying this section needs to be rewritten because there's enough holes in it that people are going to question your credibility here because it's just not believable. And what I ended up having to do was go deeper into the trauma and rewrite it without my ego filter. Um, and that was very difficult. I had gotten my um, CPTSD symptoms in a place where they were manageable. They would still crop up quite frequently, but they were they were manageable. And then writing my book threw me out of whack. And so um, as I was like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and try this Johns Hopkins method of psilocybin um, for myself. And so the first dose that I took was one gram. And that one gram dose is a high enough dose to get very relaxed and a little floaty, but really not enough for most people to have a significant mystical experience. And I knew that the mystical experience was, is, is the goal. But that first dose was to how does my body respond to psilocybin? Am I allergic to it? Am I, you know, is this going to increase my anxiety or decrease my anxiety? Um, my husband was there for that dose as well. And I mostly just felt transcending love. Like I, I, I felt really peaceful. I felt important. And that feeling important is very healing for me because I grew up in a home where if I wasn't the best at something, I wasn't valued. I wasn't loved. And so I played the flute in high school. I sat first chair as a flute player from the time I started in fifth grade all the way up through my college years when I was playing um, for scholarship. I'm, I'm a very accomplished flautist. And it's not because I wanted to be accomplished as a flautist. It was because if I wasn't first chair, my mom and dad were not proud of me. It wasn't enough. It didn't matter how much I practiced. It wasn't enough. And so I grew up in this sense of everything was a competition. I always had to be the smartest person in the room. And I was always the best and the most knowledgeable on any topic. And I'd, I'd research things so that I could be objectively right. So that way, when there was any debate, I was right. And not only was I right, but I could, you know, pull up on the phone or on the internet and be like, look, see, I'm right. Here's the research to back that, which is, of course, very off-putting for the people that I had relationships with. And so as I entered the mental health field, I began to challenge that tendency, but I challenged it in a way that I would give value to other people's opinion and I would stay silent. I stopped being the know-it-all in the room, but that didn't change the ticker going on in my head of what my brain was saying back to be the right person in the room. And so on that one gram dose, I felt important without having to be 
knowledgeable. It was like this introduction of you can let go of having to be the smartest, the best, um, and, and quote unquote, right. I didn't have to do that anymore. Um, I waited about three months before I did my next dose. And my next dose was four grams. And I definitely had a mystical experience. Um, I would say that that mysticism for me lasted about two and a half to three hours. Um, at this point, it's important for me to talk about growing up when I was really little. My dad was my hero. Uh, my dad is very good at entertaining little kids. Now, he pitted me against my younger brother. I'm the oldest of four. And so my younger brother and I, so I identify my brother as Joey in my book, and I'm going to stick with those pseudonyms to be respectful of their privacy. But Joey and I never got along. We were always pitted against each other for competition and whatnot. And so because I was bigger, um, when my brother and I would wrestle, I always beat him. I stopped wrestling him when, when he started beating me because then I wasn't the best in the room anymore. Um, and whatnot. But when my body started in puberty, my dad stopped holding me. He stopped loving me. He started to be very critical of me. And so I was 11, 12 when, you know, things started sprouting and hormones started to change. And so I felt very unloved. And as I look back on those years, and this is very well illustrated in my book, trauma bonded. So if you want to know a little bit more in detail about what was going on, read, read the upcoming book um, about that. But my dad had some really weird sexual development expectations of us. Um, in true Mormon fashion, I was responsible for a male's arousal. Um, if I dressed wrong, I would get raped. Um, those types of myths are, are what I grew up with. And it didn't ever make any sense to me. And I have forever wondered why did my dad isolate me and scapegoat me? So the other thing that my dad did a lot when I was growing up is he started to blame me from the time I was about, I don't know, six to 18 months is what my mom has said. My dad started to blame me for he and my mom's marital problems. And he's told me many times that if I didn't exist, he and my mom would have had a happy marriage. It's my fault um, that everything is bad in their, in their marriage. And so I went into this four gram dose wanting to understand why does dad blame me for everything that goes wrong in our family? And if if you follow me on social media or anything, you're going to see I am pretty good at cataloging now. I'm like, look, it's all in writing. Here's the evidence. Sarah gets blamed for all kinds of things that don't even make sense. Like I was blamed that my brother had sex before marriage, even though I had been married and moved out for years before that occurred. And I was like, what? I don't I'm not connecting these dots. So I went in to the experience wanting to understand what my dad gained from blaming me. Um, what I'm about to tell you isn't in my book. In fact, the exact opposite is in my book. In my book, I wrote, my dad had never crossed, quote unquote, that boundary because I didn't have any memory of it. But while I was in this mystical experience, clarity came to me that my dad had done some things to me. And I, I, I experienced it. This is where that putting words to it gets really hard. I re-experienced it as knowing it was him 
and bodily sensations of pressure in certain areas and identification of big toe or thumbs. Like it wasn't, it wasn't a reliving of it. It was just enough for me to go, oh, there was some inappropriate touch of my dad to me. And then I was transported to probably when I was 18 months to two years old. And I was talking. And anybody who knows Sarah knows that Sarah talks a lot, probably way too much. I have ADHD and therefore a lack of a filter. And that I started to sit, tell my mom and the babysitters, you know, the, you know, mom's friends and stuff that my dad had done this to me. And then I remember hearing my dad say things like, no, that's not what happened. I was just changing your diaper and I had to clean deeper crevices. And that's, that's just what she's talking about. And I had this very vague memory of going, no, but not having the words to debate that. Um, the other thing that I think it's important to know is that my parents had sex in front of me that they, they were at BYU. So they were BYUI doers and they lived in family housing and they had a one bedroom house. Um, and even when I was born, they were still in just that one bedroom house. And so they had me sleeping in their bedroom and my dad would not wait for me to fall asleep before they engaged in sexual intercourse. And so for the first two years of my life, I grew up watching my parents engage in that. And my dad was very demanding um, and oftentimes took advantage of my mom. But if my dad was feeling anxious, sex soothed him. And so I was a very hypersexual kiddo growing up. And that again is outlined in my book, just how hypersexual I was. And, and I wanted to understand why did dad blame me and why was I hypersexual? Um, and so that four gram dose took me to in those early years, now, you know, two to four where I'm talking about it and being frustrated that my dad is minimizing it, but not knowing how to say it otherwise. And then just being told, hush, you don't talk about those things. You need to be quiet. What I can say is as that knowledge came to me, I didn't feel disgusted. I didn't feel violated. I felt completely peaceful. It was more like pieces of a missing puzzle just clicked into place. It was like, oh, dad blamed me so he wouldn't get in trouble. Oh, dad, um, because, and my mom had told me about being exposed to sex in the beginning. Oh, I learned how to self-soothe by watching my parents. Oh, I get this. Oh, this makes sense now. And as I came out of that, there still was not disgust. There still was not a feeling of victimization. Rather, I walked away with this enlightened understanding of what occurred. Now, I think it's important to say that once I started talking about it as a little kid, my dad had stopped. So it didn't go on to where I have conscious awareness of that. Um, I felt like that was completely factual. And so um, later, <laughs> this is where the story gets, maybe I shouldn't admit this here. Um, I don't have a good relationship with my parents. And about a year ago, I cut contact entirely. But before I cut contact, I had shoes or a shirt or something that my mom had borrowed for me. Um, I was visiting my grandparents. My parents were out of town. And I had said, hey, mom, um, I need this back. 
are you okay if I go into your closet and grab it? And she said, yeah, absolutely. It's right here. While I was in that closet, my dad has kept religiously kept a journal for most of his life. And um, I snooped a little bit, not, not probably the right thing that I should do, but I found the journal from when I was that age and I just turned some pages and then I saw it was like something jumped out of my dad's journal at me. And it was um, something to the effect of Sarah keeps talking. I have to stop or I'm going to go to jail. And when I read that, I, I was shocked. And then I just closed the book, or closed the journal, put it back. But it was like that confirmation of what I had experienced under the four gram dose that it was true. So in the beginning, it was there's no way to prove it. Maybe it happened. Maybe it didn't. I was having a hard time trusting it because I didn't have conscious memory of that. But after I saw that in my dad's journal, um, which I'm not a snooper, but I was that day, um, it was that reinforcement that my brain took me to remember what I needed to remember to have resolution from all of the question marks for me. And since then, so I have complex PTSD, so not healing, but since then, I no longer feel that hole in me when my parents blame me for things. It's like my body recognizes that my dad is doing it as a self-protective measure and that it's not about me. And even though academically as a counselor, I knew and had taught people that those behaviors aren't about them. It's about the other person. When somebody is blaming constantly, it's, it's about the blamer, not the blamed most of the time. So even though I have this master's degree, I'm teaching this to clients every day, the experiential expertise of that was lacking in me because when it happened to me, I still felt detached and hurt and harmed and questioning and alone and icky. It was always very uncomfortable. And now when I get blamed, I go, oh, it's just the habit that's been formed from the time I was little. They're just needing to protect themselves. I'm okay. And because of that understanding, I'm not having the same intense reaction when I get blamed. Um, I don't feel, I'm not like running through my head that ticker tape, those intrusive thoughts of, did I do everything right? Like that constant hypervigilance of checking, was it me? Did I do this? That is gone. The anxiety of it is gone. And I was able to come off of one of the psychotropic medications. Um, and, and I only took a benzo, goodness, I'm going to say once or twice a month. I was very good at managing the benzo use for those panic attacks. I have not had to take a benzodiazepine to manage a panic attack since then. And it's been about two and a half years since that dose. And so for me, from that clinical perspective, because I keep track of what is the evidence-based things, what are the objective facts that I can follow? And they are, I no longer take benzos to manage panic when I get blamed or when my, when I have any interactions with my family of origin. Um, I have that one little line in the journal that helps me see that what I experienced absolutely feels. And I would say makes perfect sense. 
that it's objectively true. And on that reduction, I use a, a Likert scale and the depression and anxiety inventories. All of my numbers have gone down. But the final thing that has been incredibly beneficial is that when I'm working with clients who have similar trauma to me, so I'm talking about those in the post-Mormon community, those who are victims of child abuse or sexual abuse, I'm no longer triggering in session. So before I would have to prepare, when those clients were coming in, I would be mentally prepared. I had to kind of compartmentalize myself from them. So there was a little bit of a distance between me and the client so that I could maintain my composure in session. And then when that client would leave, I would have to take a 30 to 45 minute break in order to meditate and deep breathe and work through my own triggers before I saw the next client so that I could be competent in my role as the counselor. And I no longer have to do that. That compartmentalization, that gap has closed. And my clients who are struggling with similar traumas, the way that I relate to them has shifted. So it is also benefiting them as much as it's protecting me. And so I will be doing my six gram dose here in the next few weeks um, under that you know, the same study. And the only reason I haven't done it yet is I have not quite figured out what question I, you know, that that set in setting, I haven't figured out what I want to understand better. But now there's a level of excitement as I go into it. It's that I cannot wait to see what I learn this time. Because like you, Bill, I've been working through these things for years, since 2004, so 2004 to 2021, 2000, early 2022, I had been in therapy off and on, and I had done all the kinds of therapy for PTSD and CPTSD. And that four gram dose, I have had the positive benefits now for two and a half years. And I am much happier, much calmer. And, and I would say a much, much more altruistic individual and a much more effective professional because of that experience. Yeah. It's, uh, first of all, thank you for sharing all of that. I, um, it's, we, we live in a world where for the collective good of the society, we tell individuals to put down any vulnerability. Mm -hmm. We suggest like, don't, don't really share your authentic self and right. to, to sit here on a podcast and to tell that story. I just want to say thank you for being vulnerable. My, I've got so many friends who have had positive experiences with these things. And two friends in particular were taking antidepressant medicine. They uh, went into a high dose mushroom experience with the hope that it would deal with their depression. And both of them experienced huge success to where when they came out of it, neither of them from that day forward took their medicine right. because they were fine. Like it, it took care of, whatever it was that was lingering over them for years and years and years and years. So as you share that experience, like I'm in my head going like, yeah, this is, this is the good that these, uh, these substances have in helping us to untangle the traumas that we've experienced from the repercussions that constantly sort of linger or to some degree haunt so many people. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, I love uh, the word haunt. Decades. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love the word haunt. Well, and the only quote unquote negative side effect I had was when I swallowed that high of a dose. You need to do it on an empty stomach. My stomach felt a little unsettled for 20 or 30 minutes. And then at the end of it, I had a little bit of diarrhea, which resolved within a day. But there have been no lasting negative side effects. And if I had to do it all again, which I plan to, I'm okay with a few moments of some nausea swallowing that much psilocybin. And I'm okay having a bowel movement that is very, very loose. Um, The toilet is, you know, I was in my bedroom. The toilet's right there in the bathroom right next door. But that's it. Whereas psychotropic medications have so many negative side effects that are attached to them that the risk to benefit ratio is is vastly different. One of the things I will say is, you know, that experience was for me and for my understanding only. I cannot let an external source come in and tell me what that means. Now, people are going to be tempted to do so because that's our that's our normal human nature. Um, people are going to doubt that that experience was true. And that's okay with me because their doubt does not matter. I am better for it. And the understanding that I got, again, I'm not going to press charges. There's no way I could do that. Um, Nor do I feel like I need to, because for me, I understand enough now that the, the trauma response is gone. And that's, that's what's important. So, you know, if, the listener, you know, for the viewers and listeners that are joining us today, um, for those who may be interested in trying something like this, my greatest conch or my greatest caution is interpret what it means for you and you alone. Your enlightenment does not then stretch out for you to, you know, well, because I experienced this, it means this for you for somebody else. Like, I'm not going to take this and, and call up my sisters and say, Hey, this happened and you need to do this. And you need to, you know, this means that you are probably abused in the same. I'm I'm not going to do that. It doesn't mean that it's very personal. So you've got to honor that internal authority over yourself when you're interpreting this in order for the significance of it to last in the way that you want, want it to. Yeah. And it doesn't surprise me that in transit, in that luminal space between reality as I know it and entering when the medicine starts to kick in, it doesn't surprise me that I think most of us with mushrooms or LSD or MDMA Mm -hmm. or ayahuasca for sure throughout the entire experience, there are moments where uh, we're nauseous or we're throwing up or we feel a little... uh, trepidatious <laughs> about that transition space from from reality yeah. into the drug because you really are going some other place like uh, and mm-hmm. i don't mean that like you really are transporting to another planet like you really are transitioning to a different way in which you see the world and i would expect a little disruption and chaos in doing that so right, well, because your ego your ego does not like no longer being in the driver's seat yeah, And so that, that discomfort I'm going to theorize is, you know, that conscious awareness or your ego saying, no, 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 no. And if you can learn to breathe through that and just relax through it, it doesn't last very long. And 
yeah, the majority of people. So my clients who self-report doing this um, all have very similar experiences as I do, which is a little discomfort, but it was completely worth it because of what they got out of it in the end. And I'm going to say the number one reason that my clients are terminating sessions early with me if they come in and they're like hey I don't really feel like I need you before I cannot even count how many times it's you know I was with some friends and I did some research and so I I, I took a high dose of of psilocybin and and I'm just doing better and I don't feel like I need counseling anymore but thank you so much Sarah you've been great I cannot even count how many times that happens for me and the goal of therapy is for my client to fire me. My goal is for them to terminate services, not because they're angry, but because they are healed and they don't need me anymore. And so when that happens, I rejoice with that client because I know based on the clinical experience and my personal experience that they are doing so much better because they have a level of understanding that I could never provide them with talk therapy alone. I, I just can't yeah, because the know. ego gets in the way. Totally. It, it, even on when I did ayahuasca, you know, going back to kind of how the body responds, there's a lot of throwing up. That's just what ayahuasca is. And, and but I've it, never it done it. Posi- <laughs> it was positive. I held my bucket all through the night and the shaman would sing certain songs and certain songs would call me into a space of throwing up and I, and I didn't have the experience of attaching that throwing up to something specific, but I did generally understand that I was purging. I was letting go of something that was creating tension inside of me. And that even though throwing up is not fun and throwing up, isn't uh, That's gross. anything we look at was a positive experience in that moment. I was grateful to be doing it. It was, I knew it was for my ultimate good to be tossing my cookies into that bucket. Yeah. Well, in Bessel van der Kolk in his book, The Body Keeps the Score, talks about physical symptoms in your physiological symptoms in your body as you're dealing through trauma. And so even if you're not, you know, and I, I wouldn't know this, even if you're puking during this ayahuasca experience, if your brain is interpreting, I'm getting rid of the bad through this mechanism of vomiting, even if we were to, you know, study and break down your vomit in a microbiologic level and study it. And we're like, no, this is just the contents of his stomach. I don't know what's going to be there, but that psychological piece of I eliminated something bad out of me and I can hold on to this tangible event of vomiting to get rid of the bad. It still releases the bad. And we don't necessarily understand why it works, but in the research, we see that phenomenon you know it's almost like that placebo effect you know I don't know if throwing up gets rid of trauma um I wouldn't think so in my conscious state but what you're describing yeah over and over and over again in the research your brain might take that vomiting as meaning that you're getting rid of you're purging something harmful out of you and that has significant meaning to you yeah Totally. So as we kind of wrap up here, any last thoughts from you? And then I do want to give you a chance to talk again a moment about your book and also to point people to where they can uh, find out more about you and the work that you're doing. So I don't have anything else to add for the topic 
today other than to say if any of the listeners or viewers have questions for me, I'm very open to responding uh, via email. Um, and so the email address that people can reach me at is daisygirlcommunications at gmail.com. Um, Daisy, all traditional spelling, Daisy Girl Communications with an S at the end at gmail.com. This is my my logo here. Um, that is the umbrella company for my podcasts and, and whatnot. But if you have questions about this, again, I can only answer from a from an educational perspective, but I can point you and provide you with the research articles so that you can have the information that you desire so that you can make the best choice for you. So. Oh, you're then, on mute. Yeah, yeah. There you go. And I just wanted to check like uh, the two podcasts that you do, uh, what are the websites for those? And then I'll put the book up on the screen and we can, we can talk about it for another moment. Too. So everything is still under the daisygirlcommunications.com website. You can see both podcasts, the first one and the most popular one. We've, we've got um, over 20,000 listens in less than a year. So we will hit our year anniversary this September and we're right around 20, almost 21,000 downloads if memory is serving me correctly in the first year. And that is unpacking Mormonism and other religious trauma. And we talk about all high demand systems, not just Mormonism. We utilize more examples from Mormonism because both my husband and I were raised Mormon. Um, and my husband just recently left the Mormon church as in like six weeks ago, um, officially out loud. Um, so, but we use a lot of examples from that religious system, but we're talking about trauma that is gained in high demand religions or high demand organizations and giving you basic therapeutic tools that you can utilize as you navigate out of those systems. Or if you're choosing to remain in the system, how you can do so and, and be more nuanced and, and hold your authenticity and sovereignty um, sacred for yourself. So that's the first one. The other podcast is Raising Crazy, Growing Up to Show Up. Um, I have a schizophrenic son. My 18-year-old is adopted and he was diagnosed with schizophrenia uh, with psychosis right before his fifth birthday. So he is one of the few pediatric onset schizophrenia individuals in the, in the world. It's very, very rare. But raising crazy is kind of a play on words in the sense of because of my son, Brig, I had to learn how to deal with my own traumas so that I could show up differently for him and parent him with the special needs that he um, had because of that schizophrenia. My nine year old has autism. And so those those lessons and those skills have translated into showing up differently for my youngest two who also have some significant behavioral health special needs. And so really what I'm talking about is how caregivers can address their own traumas so that they show up for their children differently. Um, that one, uh, the episodes are about 10 to 20 minutes a piece. And we just give a quick skill and a funny story um, to do that. So, yeah, and you can find great. both of those at daisygirlcommunications.com. Love it. Love it. And, and if you'll, you know, send me the links to these uh, in a Facebook message or something after I'll make sure these are all in the show notes. And then uh, I'll just throw the book up here uh, one more time. Trauma Yay. Bonded by Sarah Westbrook. Uh, you said this comes out here shortly. 
Yeah. So pre-sales, um, I just sent the interior back. There were only two more mistakes in it that I had found. So as soon as that's done, I, they told me it takes 72 hours for it to upload and populate and then for the links to go live so that you can pre-order it. And my understanding is if you pay for it today on September 6th, the copy will show up either the 6th or the, or the 7th. Um, because that's when it is its official release date. I am looking for a book army. What a book army does is I will give you an advanced. I won't give it to you. You buy the advanced copy from me for $20. And then uh, we ask that you leave an Amazon review and share it to your social media pages. And if you do all of that in the book army before the official release date, um, then I will send you a free gift from Daisy Girl Communications. So if you want to be a part of that book army, which helps me promote the book, um, it, it kind of bumps up those algorithms so that it shows up better in Amazon and, and whatnot um, to give us a really great launch day. If you're if you want to be a part of that, just shoot me an email with your address um, at daisygirlcommunications at gmail.com and, and we can absolutely do that. But this this story is my it is my story of healing um, relationships that were forged in complex PTSD. I will give a trigger warning. There's a trigger warning in the book. Um, then I've, I've gotten lots of great reviews from endorsers and whatnot so far. But the number one feedback I get is take it slow because it's very, very real. This is not a book that most people are going to be comfortable burning through and, and not putting down. Um, in the sense of what I'm getting is the trauma and this is, is so real that I have to take it slow just to digest uh, what I'm, what I'm reading, but I've gotten yeah. just riveting, real raw. I've gotten really good reviews from the people who the beta readers and, and the people who have, have read it. I've that's, that's my soul book. I'm, I'm just going to say trauma bonded is me bearing my soul in a way that I never have before. So I'm excited and terrified all at the same time for for its release so. that makes sense though like when anytime we what's Brene brown say like when we if we don't if we're not in the arena getting our ass kicked right that uh -huh. that we're not doing it right you have to put yourself out there you've got to be real and authentic and as you pointed out what pe generally people when they hear someone sharing their personal experience and taking risk there is um meaning making that's happening for them too. Cause they're connecting to like, Oh yeah, that's what it feels like for me that I'm so glad that person put into words, something similar to what I've experienced. And so yeah. I'm just kudos to you for well, being willing to put yourself on paper. I love Brene Brown. Um, I worship Brene Brown probably more than Jesus right now in my life. Um, <laughs> I'm not really sure where I'm at with God and Jesus a lot of yeah. days, but um, if, if they even exist in the way that we think they do, but I had to learn how to address my vulnerability and I embraced that when writing this book. I mean, I'll, I'll give you a little spoiler alert. I talk about cheating on my husband because mm. of a trauma bond and I don't pull any punches. My editor wrote me and said, you come off as a bitch right here. Like what is going on? Are you sure you want to write it this way? Like your protagonist is bitchy. People aren't going to like her in these chapters. Yeah. And my response back was, good. I was bitchy. I was not making decisions that would honor my relationship with my husband. And I think it's important for people to 
see that and understand what went into that, that, you know, I wasn't cheating on him because he was a terrible man. In fact, most people who know my husband are like, wow, I wish I could have a guy like that. Mason is my best friend. Um, we've had a very good marriage for 24 years now. Why on earth would I cheat on this guy when I had such a happy, beneficial marriage? It's that trauma bond. It it really sabotaged. And, and frankly, I sabotaged all of the good things in my life. So yes, I wrote this book. It's really funny. My family is telling me that the book is full of lies to make them look bad. None of them have read it. So they're an expert on what's in there without reading it. And I just have to chuckle because I think the person who looks the worst in this book is definitely me at times because I was very, I mean, it's the most honest thing I've ever done. And I talked about how I was dysfunctional and how I was destroying the relationships that were most important to me because of a trauma bond that I shared due to complex PTSD, my history of significant emotional neglect and abuse um, with some physical abuse. Like I said, I don't talk about the sexual abuse in here because my experience with psilocybin occurred as a way to heal the trauma that writing this book had created. And I was not willing to put it, put it in there. It's already 540 something pages. So didn't want to add another huge chapter to add that piece. in. that'll go in the next book for sure though. Totally. I, again, I just appreciate the vulnerability. I, I think we all benefit when people are willing. I'll just say it this way in our society, there's so many things we can't talk about. You know, you know, you can't mm -hmm. sit around with uh, most people and talk about uh, the questions you have around drugs or sex or relationships right. or uh, how to, how to negotiate getting your needs as a human being met. And anytime there's a space where someone goes like, no, no, you can, you can say all of it here. Yeah, it is. You can tell the difference in those spaces of human connection and um, mm -hmm. the, the ability to get the tools to show up better in life. And this book sounds like it's going to be a great uh, tool for people to yeah. hear how trauma affected you and uh, to make meaning from that in a space that's safe to kind of think about their own experiences as you made it safe in sharing your own. So thank uh, you so trauma, much. I, uh... You're very welcome. One uh, of the bonded by Sarah Westbrook. So yeah, one of the things I want to add real quick um, is that as humans, we are really good at sharing somebody else's vulnerability, you know, where I would say, hey, let me tell you what my dad went through and how he dealt with that, which isn't my place. That, that's not my story right. to tell. And so as I've, as I've written this book and as I'm writing the other books, I've got uh, four or five more in the works, just will depend on how that works. My goal is to teach from my own story because my story is the only one that I own and it's the only one that I can truly speak authentically to. And, and, and that was my goal. And I feel like I met it. Um, and thank you so much, Bill, for allowing me to come on here and, and, you know, market and, and make the your listeners hear that I'm excited to send you and RFM a copy when I get those advanced copies in excited to send those to you. So you can let me know what you think. And I would just invite listeners and viewers, if you read it, please give me an honest review because I can't improve if people aren't honest with me. And I, I hope to be the type of person that um, can hear those reviews and 
and turn them into something positive. So thank you. Can't hear you, Bill. You're muted. Sorry, I do that from time to time. So Trauma <laughs> Bonded by Sarah Westbrook, a true story of navigating attachments forged in complex PTSD. Uh, I'm excited to read it. So I look forward to uh, look forward to the copy and uh, I'll give it a read and uh, I'll leave you a review on Amazon. Thanks. Um, I appreciate it. I'll appreciate send you a free gift. I love it. And I appreciate the conversation. It's been a, a great chance to just talk about uh, psychedelics and trauma and therapy and uh, the data that's beginning to come in over the last few years and uh, this is kind of an exciting field to get into and uh, being in this community of having uh, left a certain faith and being in an area where a lot of people are that have left it. I'm certainly familiar of the religious trauma that goes on and the trauma bonding mm -hmm. that, that happens with those of us who have had a similar experience. And I'm glad to, to see you captured a lot of that uh, in a book and, and excited to read it. So everybody, mm -hmm. thank you uh, to Sarah for giving her, uh, us her time. And folks, leave your comments uh, uh, below and please hit the like and subscribe button for more conversations here on Almost Awakened. Sarah, thank you so much for spending some time with us this morning. Absolutely. My pleasure. And it was an honor. So okay. thank you again, Phil, so Stick much. around for a minute or two. I'm going to hit the closing here and uh, I'll talk to you here on the other side. Perfect. Bye-bye, everybody. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director, Brittany Hartman.